All right, there we go. Thanks, Rob. So grab a Bible if you'd like to use one of those. If you don't have a Bible, uh, take it. Uh, we can get more. So we'd love for you to have a Bible. Please take one. It's our privilege to offer those to you. We're going to be in the Gospel of John, chapter 3. As I mentioned before, because of the uh, reading today, John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 were, uh, were read. Probably uh, the most familiar verse in all of Scripture. Uh, non-believers know that verse. It's held up at sports events, on cards, and things like that. John three sixteen. We get to see it in context today. And I want to set up the context for you in terms of what's been happening over the last few weeks, especially if you've missed any of those weeks and you're, you're new with us uh, today, Jesus came into Jerusalem and cleansed the temple of all the merchants and all the money changers that were there because they were in God's temple, a place of worship, ripping people off, a place that was designed for the Gentiles. <laughs> this is falling apart. Here we go. The place that was designed for the Gentiles to come and know the God of Israel and to worship him. Jesus didn't like that. He drove them out of that temple. And then it, chapter 2 sort of ended with a commentary on the, the state of people's hearts, that people believed in Jesus because of the signs that he did, but he didn't believe in them. In other words, he didn't believe their faith. He knew their faith was superficial, but they were only in awe of his signs. And so John places this account in John chapter 3 with Nicodemus to sort of give us an example what, what does it look like? What, what type of person believed in Jesus? On what level did he believe in him in terms of uh, who he was in relation to the signs? And Nicodemus comes on the scene. We looked at this last week, the first 10 verses, and he's a Pharisee. He's uh, not just any run-of-the-mill Pharisee. He is a leader of the Pharisees. He's of the Sanhedrin. And he comes to Jesus by night. He comes secretly, um, sort of undercover, to find out more about Jesus. And he says these words to him. He says, Rabbi, in verse 2, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. What Jesus had done in that temple is he had challenged the authority of the leaders like that. He challenged their authority. He says, well, I have a greater authority. This is my father's house. And so one of the representatives of the local authority comes to see Jesus and says, I'll go check this out. And sort of in saying that commentary really just sort of brings Jesus down to his level. Okay, we acknowledge that you are, you're not just any ordinary Jew. You're, you're a rabbi, obviously. You, you've, you've come from God. No one can do the things you do. I'll, I'll bring you, I'll put you on my level. <laughs> Which is interesting because, because Jesus is far above the level of Nicodemus. And Nicodemus makes this comment about the signs and, and probably wants to know further about the signs. And Jesus doesn't even go there. He just drops a theological bomb in the midst of his uh, worldview there and says, what you need is that you need to be born again. And unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. We talked last week about what that was. That was regeneration. And in fact, born again literally is born from above. That you need something, Nicodemus, that you can't do for yourself. You've got a nice long list of works, right? You've, 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 you've met all the conditions of Judaism, Right? You follow all the customs, you follow all the rituals. Now I need you to ditch those, start from scratch, and you need something that you can't even do yourself. And that's regeneration. Regeneration is a, entirely a work of God, 100%. We play no active role in it. We contribute nothing to it. God does it. It's all from Him. And that was the point. 
In fact, that's the whole point of bringing up the idea of birth. Just as you are uh, physically born and have no say over that whatsoever, you contribute nothing to that, so you contribute nothing to your spiritual birth. And that's what you need, Nicodemus. Today, what Jesus is going to do is he's going to address Nicodemus's response. We didn't talk about his response really last week. We're talking about it today. And what was his response? His response was unbelief. Unbelief. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 says this, The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. The natural man is the man that has not been regenerated. He's of his own sinful nature. He has not yet received the divine nature. He's the natural man. And a natural man doesn't receive the things of the Spirit of God. You can't know the things of the Spirit of God because they're foolishness. And what you need uh, to know them is the Spirit. They're spiritually discerned. <coughs> Belief is a requirement for regeneration. We haven't touched on this in a long time. But if you were to go to the end of the book of John, chapter 20, verse 31, I want to remind you of the theme of the book. The reason that, that John is writing this book to begin with is found in John, chapter 20, verse 31. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. The whole purpose he's writing everything is so that you would believe. Last week, the theme was born. Five times we looked at that word. You need to be born. This week, John kicks into gear the theme of belief. Seven times you're going to see him use that word, belief. And he's using it in the context of addressing Nicodemus's unbelief. Unbelief. Now, what you might be thinking at this moment is, hold on a second. So let me get this straight. Regeneration is entirely work of God. But I, I need to, to believe. How does this work together? And, and here we come to this. We've, we've alluded to this. It, it came up in John chapter 1. But, but the great, strange paradox of salvation is that there are two lines that run parallel throughout all of Scripture. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Regeneration is entirely a work of God. We, we contribute nothing to it. But at the same time, you must believe. These two things never cross over. They never intersect. They always run parallel. What I'm going to do today is just introduce that, and then we're going to go through the passage. But if you're hoping to figure out how that possibly works, you're going to be disappointed. Because I don't know. I don't know. And, and you can't either. They're just scriptural truths. They're taught as such. I'm just going to give you a few examples. I'd like you to turn to the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament, chapter 10. This is not in relation to salvation specifically, but it does set up the idea, and then we'll look at an example of salvation. But in Isaiah chapter 10, Isaiah chapter 10, you have, <laughs> you have a proclamation against Assyria. Now, Assyria was a wicked pagan nation, right? It was a wicked nation. And in Isaiah chapter 10, we're given, a, uh, we're given a view as to what God is going to do with this wicked pagan nation. And it says, to the, it says this in verse 5. Woe to Assyria. And usually when you hear the woe, you're like, okay, that's not good news. Woe to Assyria, 
the rod of my anger and the staff in whose hand is my indignation. I will send him, still speaking about Assyria, against an ungodly nation and against the people of my wrath. I will give him charge to seize the spoil, to take the prey, and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. God is going to use Assyria, the rod of his anger, the staff of his indignation, to punish another nation. And the other nation happens to be Israel. Right? Because the nation of Israel, uh, Assyria came to power and it came in and in the, the divided kingdom swept and conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, 722 BC. Wiped them out. Took them. God is saying, I'm going to use this, this kingdom, this evil people, to punish my people. But then look at verse 7. Yet... He does not mean so, nor does his heart think so. <laughs> Assyria doesn't mean this, and Assyria doesn't think this. That's not Assyria's plan. Assyria's plan is not, I'm going to go do this because God wants me to do this. He has no clue about that. But God says, I'm going to use them to do this. Yet, God is still going to hold Assyria responsible Look at this. Look at verse 12. Therefore it shall come to pass when the Lord has performed all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, that he will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the glory of his haughty looks. So when all that happens, then I'm going to punish Assyria for doing what I told them to do. To do it, for doing what I picked them up and made them do. Interesting, isn't it? In Acts chapter 2, we'll get a little closer to what we're talking about here. If you go all the way back to the New Testament, Acts chapter 2. This is on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes on the apostles. Peter is, is preaching on the day of Pentecost. And this is what he says in verse 22. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. Both things are present there. God determined he to, to deliver Jesus to the cross. That was according to God's plan and foreknowledge. Yet, you took him and put him on the cross. Divine sovereignty, human responsibility. And yet we find out later, God holds them accountable for the death of Jesus. They will be judged for some. Yet, yet, they're just acting according to God's ultimate plan. These things hurt our brains. These things make us confused because we just, in our minds, we can't reconcile the two. Stop trying to. Because you have a puny brain. And so do I, compared to God's. Right? He is an, he's an infinite God. I am finite. I cannot understand these things. So how does this play into salvation? I'll just give you a couple examples and we'll jump in the passage. Matthew chapter uh, 11. I'm going to be making you guys flip through your Bibles a bit today, so hope your fingers are getting limbered up here. <laughs> Matthew chapter 11. Here's another one. Set side by side here. Chapter 11, verse 27. All things have been delivered to, to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. No one can know him unless the Son wills it that you reveal, right? It doesn't happen beyond God's will. Yet, look at verse 28. Come to me. Come to me. 
So no one can do that unless God wills it, yet come to me. Divine sovereignty, human responsibility. In John, you're going to see this all through the book of John. We're just touching the tip of the iceberg today. But in John chapter 6, just to give you another example of John's mind and how he comprehends the, this great truth, go to John chapter 6. This is probably familiar to you when Jesus speaks of himself as the bread from heaven, right? The bread from heaven. John chapter 6 and verse 35. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. That's great, right? So come to Jesus so that you can, you can never hunger and never thirst. Verse 36. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. So he says people, that need, to, people need to come to him and believe in him, and they'll never hunger and they'll never thirst. Yet all that the Father gives to him will come to him. So it comes from the Father. Go down to verse 40. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Skip down to verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Do you see what happens? It flips back and forth. It goes to divine sovereignty and human responsibility and never attempts to explain it. It never goes, now, this is how that works. You know why? Our brains would explode. We can't comprehend how it works. Yet the truth is all through Scripture. What we come to today is the second half of that truth. In John chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, we saw divine sovereignty. God is the one who regenerates. You can't be born physically. You can't control that. You can't control spiritual birth. But the second half of it, believe. Believe. And John puts them side by side in the same account with the same person. Jesus is trying to exploit, explode Nicodemus' head, I think. So let's look at this. We're going to look at this in three sections. The problem of unbelief, because Nicodemus has a problem, and it's unbelief. Look at verse 11. We'll just start. Well, we're going to reread the whole passage, and then we'll go through it. We're going to look at 11 through 21. Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man, who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the, the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. Let me pray. God, we just pray your blessing on our time and your word today. Lord, we, we always need the Spirit's help as we open your word. God, particularly today as we dive into this difficult section of scripture, Lord, I pray that our minds would not be distracted with trying to reconcile this 
paradox of salvation, but that we, our minds would just be open to what you're showing us clearly, that belief is required. So God would, you, God, would you guide us into the truth today, help our hearts to be open to what you want us to see. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So in verse 11, Jesus starts with these words, most assuredly. And I mentioned that last week. That's a very important phrase because it only appears in John. You remember that? Might maybe your Bible say verily, verily, or truly, truly. It's the double amen of John. Amen, amen. And when Jesus says that, it's saying this. I'm about to make an authoritative statement. What I'm about to say, I have the authority to say. And it comes way above and beyond anything you know, Nicodemus. And he has used it twice already. This is the third time uh, in this passage. But he used it in verse 3 saying, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Just dropping that into Nicodemus' um, understanding. In verse 5, he said it again. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. We'll touch on that in a second. But that was Jesus' attempt to uh, elaborate a bit on that. Um, to set that in Nicodemus's mind. But here in verse 11, he says this again, most assuredly, I'm about to say something important. I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. You don't receive our witness. Nicodemus's response last week, he just responded two times, right? In verse uh, four, he, he said, how can a man be born when he is old? When, when Jesus said, you need to be born again, he said, well, how can a man be born when he's, when he's old? Can he enter into his mother's womb a second time? Nicodemus was not a dumb man. He was a smart man. He was a learned teacher. He was not literally thinking Jesus was talking about physical birth. He simply answered with the analogy that Jesus was using. He understood what Jesus was talking about to a level, but basically was saying, this is an impossibility. What you're saying is impossible. How, just like, how can a man be born again? How can he, how can he physically be born again? You see it? He's responding with unbelief. And then in verse 9, how can these things be? How can these things be? Unbelief. And Jesus sees that unbelief, and that's what he's addressing here. He says, we speak of what we know, we testify to what we've seen. He's basically saying the same thing Nicodemus said um, when he met him in verse 2. What did, Nic what did Nicodemus say? Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do the signs that you do. So what Jesus is doing here, he's using the we's like Nicodemus used the we. we we's probably referenced to his own Pharisee brothers, right? But they're speaking of what they knew and what they had seen. What they knew was that Jesus was a teacher from, from God, right? And how do they know that? Because no one can do the signs that he did unless he's uh, come from God. So they speak what they know. They testify to what they see, right? He said, yes, we do. That's what we do as humans. We speak about what we know. We testify what they Yet, yet, he says, you do not receive our witness. You don't receive it. We should speak of what we know. We, we should, uh, and, and know, by the way, is not gnosko, the knowledge. It's ido, and it means to perceive or what we've discovered. We do speak about what we've discovered. We do speak about what we've perceived. And we should testify about what we have seen. Yet, yet you, Nicodemus, you perceive others as a teacher from God. Because of what you see, but, but you don't receive our witness. You're not receiving it. Yeah, so we should speak about these things, and that should lead to receiving it. And you don't, Nicodemus. You don't receive our witness. And in verse 12, he says this to him. If I have told you earthly things, and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Clearly, Nicodemus doesn't believe. Jesus says it. 
I've told you earthly things. Jesus had just used a very simple, um, earthly, understandable analogy. Birth. Birth, right? He used the most simple thing. I'm going to use an earthly thing to make you understand, and you don't get it. So how do you hope to understand the greater spiritual truths? You responded in unbelief. <laughs> spiritual rebirth is where it all begins. Remember what I read at the beginning in um, the 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural, natural man does not receive the things that are from the Spirit of God. He can't do that. He can't. So because you haven't received this basic um, understanding, how do you ever hope to understand the greater spiritual weightier matters if you don't believe that? Things like, I don't know, the relationship between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity. Right? How do you understand that? The kingdom of God, his eternal plan of redemption. How would he understand those weightier things? Next time you are questioned by a skeptic or an unbeliever on those things, you, you tell them that they need to believe this very introductory truth first. Because um, if, if they don't, they'll, they'll never have a hope of understanding those things. They need to be born from above first. Like, I don't even want to even broach those subjects, brother, because you got no hope of understanding that. Try to understand this basic one first. You need to be born from above. <laughs> you, you, you need something that you can't do for yourself. But that's what people need to know. And that requires uh, acknowledgement of a couple of things, doesn't it? It requires acknowledgement of my current condition, that I'm a sinner, that I have no righteousness of my own that I can contribute. It requires an understanding of my spiritual state. I am separated from God. I have no hope of reaching Him on my own. And it also requires an understanding of where that leads in the future. I'll be eternally separated from God. So what's the problem with unbelief here? Is that it doesn't receive the things of the Spirit of God because it, well, it doesn't receive even the gospel. It doesn't receive the basics. It doesn't receive so what he needs is, is belief. And the problem with the unbelief is going to lead to eternal separation from God. And so what's the answer? And that's what Jesus gives us here. And this is the meat of what we're talking about today. What's the answer for unbelief? Verse 13. Verse 13. No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven. That is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. So what's the answer? Well, what Jesus says here is that it's humanly impossible for anyone to ascend to heaven, Right? And the reason is, heaven exists outside of time and space. We're confined to time and space. So it's humanly impossible to do that. I'm going to go so far to say, no one has ever done that. All right? Go to the Christian bookstores, uh, Christian bookstores, and 30 minutes in heaven, and heaven is for real. I'm going to tell you, those are rubbish <coughs> because they haven't been to heaven. A few people have been to heaven. I'll tell you who they are. Lazarus. Lazarus. Been to heaven. He's been to heaven. The saints that came out of the graves when Jesus was crucified, those guys have been to heaven. Talk to them. Um, Paul, he was taken to the third heaven, wasn't he? Uh, Moses and Elijah, for a moment, coming back to the mount for the transfiguration. Even John has seen heaven in a vision. We have revelation. We're able to read and get an accurate view of what heaven is like. But no one has gone to heaven. Muhammad did not go to heaven to receive the message from God. He went to a cave where he was demon-possessed and went to his wife and said, I think I'm demon-possessed. I'm getting all these things happening. He said, no, that's probably divine. You should probably just preach what you're saying. 
and the sayings, the Quran, became collected and became the Quran. He didn't go to heaven. He didn't go to heaven. Joseph Smith received some plates for the angel Moroni, which we don't have. He didn't go to heaven. Russell T. Hayes, B. Hayes, Jehovah's Witness, he went and measured things in the pyramids and said, God has spoken to me through this, but he didn't go to heaven. No one has ascended to heaven. That's what he's saying. But he who came down from heaven, that is the son of man who is in heaven. Only someone who's been to heaven can tell us what it's like. I'm going to listen to Jesus. So the answer for unbelief is to recognize that only one who can make known to all of humanity heavenly realities. Only Jesus is going to know that, isn't he? In John chapter 1, verse 18, we've been getting this all over and over again, but we, we talked about this in chapter 1. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. That's Jesus. Go to John chapter 6. I know we were there earlier here, but just go flip there again. In verse 30, 33. 633. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. That's Jesus. Verse 38. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Go to chapter 8. Just flip a couple more pages up to chapter 8, verse 42. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Jesus says over and over again, I have come from God. You need to listen to me. I'm the only one that knows about heavenly realities. He, he has to be believed. Jesus does. And that's what he's saying here in John chapter 3. And so he's going to speak to Nicodemus now on a level that maybe Nicodemus can understand a little bit better. He's going to go to the Old Testament once again. Verse 13, no one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that's the son of man who is in heaven. Verse 14, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the son of man, uh, son of man be lifted up. So what he's speaking about here is an, uh, an event that happened in Numbers chapter 21. Uh, you can turn there again unless your fingers are getting tired. Um, <laughs> Numbers chapter 21, but this is uh, after the... The children of Israel have come out of bondage from Egypt. They're in the wilderness, and the people are kind of getting tired at this point of uh, the manna and the stuff that God's providing and not having a home. And, you know, they're just griping and complaining, forgetting where they came from. And in Numbers chapter 21, verse 4 says this, They journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. And look what their discouragement leads to. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt? To die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. We hate this junk you keep giving us day after day. Wow. So the Lord, here's his response. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Verse 7. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. For you have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten when he looks at it shall live. 
So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. That's what he is referring to. He has taken an Old Testament story that should have been very familiar to Nicodemus to make a point. Now, let's look at that closer to see what Jesus' analogy is telling us. You had um, fiery serpents coming into the people of Israel. Why did they come in there? Because the people were rebelling, right? The rebellious. We don't like this. We don't like that. Why would you take us out here? That's a rebellious heart. And so he sends serpents in there. And what do those serpents do? They cause death. It kills people. That's God's punishment. God's punishment for rebellion is death. And so what did the people come to realize once the serpents began to afflict them? Oh, we've sinned. I thought it was just complaining. Wait a second, that's sin. Because I'm questioning the authority of God and his provision for me in my life. So they sinned. So they come pleading for help. What were they instructed to do then? Look above. Look up. Right? Look to the bronze serpent that Moses has made. Look up to that. Acknowledge your guilt. Acknowledge your sin. Express your belief in God's forgiveness and his healing power. And they were healed. And they were healed. And that's what happens. Verse 15, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The Israelites were cured by obediently, apart from any works of their own, Apart from their righteousness, because they certainly were not righteous, looking in hope and dependence on God's word at the bronze serpent. And similarly, anyone who looks upon Christ and him alone will be cured from sin's deadly bite, right? That brings death. That's the point. And it brings us to the most famous verse in all of the Bible. That's the context. For God so loved the world. I wonder how often we stop and look at that and ask this question. Why does God love the world? It doesn't actually give us the answer. You know, It just says, for God so loved the world, and tells us what he did. But it doesn't say, why does God love the world? Why does he love you? If you think about that, why does God love Israel? Let me take you to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Yeah, you're doing a lot of work today. You guys keep it up. You're doing good. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Deuteronomy. Yes, fourth book there. Deuteronomy chapter 7. God tells us exactly why he loves. You guys, did I get it wrong back there? You guys are laughing. So. Oh, yeah, I'm like, did I say Genesis X? Yeah, it's fourth book. <laughs> Deuteronomy chapter 7. He tells us exactly why he loves Israel. Look at verse 7. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any other people. For you were the least of all peoples. So he didn't choose you because you were a great number of people. You're actually the least of all peoples. And then in verse 8, but because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. What's the answer? The Lord set his love on you because he set his love on you. And he promised to fulfill an oath. If you skip the grid, if you're there in chapter 7, just look over to chapter 9 of Deuteronomy. He gives us more. Verse 4. I love this. Do not think in your heart, this is when they're going to go possess the land, right? He's telling them about that. Do not think in your heart after the Lord your God has cast them out before you, saying, because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out from before you. 
It is not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you go in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God drives them out from before you, and that he may fulfill the word which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Therefore, understand that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stiff-necked people. <laughs> don't, don't you dare go in there and go, oh, look at this great land that he gave to us. It must be because I'm so righteous. Don't think that. He's, I'm doing it for two reasons. I'm judging the wicked nations through you, and I'm fulfilling my oath. But don't start to think, oh, it must be because of my righteousness. Actually, you're pretty stubborn. <laughs> Actually, if I, I could complain, you're pretty rebellious. You're stiff-necked. has nothing to do with you. God loved the world then because he sovereignly determined to do so. He loved you not because we're righteous. He just sovereignly determined to set his love on us. That's what Romans 5, 8 tells us. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. His love came upon us not with, because we did anything good. You're actually still sinners, rebellious against God when he set his love toward us. 1 John 4.10 tells us this, In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We love him because he first loved us, 1 John 4.19 tells us. That's why he loved us. He loves us because he sovereignly determined to do so. It does not begin with us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's been a while since we talked about only begotten. It was in chapter 1. We looked at that, so I could probably review that. The word begotten is uh, manegones. It's a funny word. But it doesn't imply that Jesus was created. Don't think born. It's not a reference to his origin, but to his uniqueness, to his uniqueness. John is unique himself because he's the only one in, in of the gospel writers that uses the, the phrase only begotten. And he uses it to, to describe Jesus' as a uniqueness. The writer of Hebrews uses it in reference to Isaac, Abraham's only begotten son. Is Isaac his only son? No. But he's his only begotten son because he's unique in terms of the covenant because he's the son of the covenant. Does that make sense? So he is unique. He is unique. So that's what's being said here. God loved the world that he gave his only unique, special, in whom he is well pleased, son. You know, talk is pretty cheap, isn't it? I, I could say all day that I love my wife. I love my, my family. I love my kids. I, I love the church, right? But how do we know if someone really loves someone? By what they're willing to sacrifice for them, right? You're willing to sacrifice your, your time, your, your own pleasures, your, your own goals, your own desires for another that expresses love. God was willing to sacrifice his unique son. And that's the proof of his love for us. That's how we know he loves us. In Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, and these are fantastic verses. I think I have it for you here. 
says this, when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward... Jake, you got it up there? When the kindness of and love of our God... This is Titus 3, 4 to 6. And our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy. He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. This, this is a fascinating session. So, the kindness and love of God was shown to man not by any righteousness we have done, but according to his mercy, right? According to his mercy. And how did he save us? Through washing of regeneration. That goes back to the new birth, right? Regeneration. And renewing of the Holy Spirit, neither of which you can do. He saved us through that. Whom he poured out on us abundantly through whom? Jesus Christ, our Savior. Notice both Christ is listed as our Savior and God. Because God is the one that showed his love for us, right? God is the instrument behind the regeneration there. But all of that is possible through Jesus Christ. So Christ is our Savior as well. And that's the expression of God's love for us. It's amazing. Amazing. So God loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. There's a fantastic word there. I don't want us to go over it. And that is whoever. Whoever. Whoever believes in him. And God's offer of salvation is wide enough to cover the vilest of sinners. doesn't matter who you are. Whoever believes in him. If Hitler believed, truly believed in Jesus Christ, he could be saved. I know that shocks people. Well, not Hitler. Yes, Hitler. Paul felt that way. Paul certainly felt that way. In, in 1 Timothy 1.15, he said this, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Paul thought himself the worst of sinners. Why? He persecuted the church. He killed God's people. He said, if Jesus can save me, he can save anyone. What's it take? Belief. It takes belief. Look at verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Hmm. He didn't send the son into the world to condemn the world. It's an interesting phrase. Now remember, I don't want to lose sight of Nicodemus. Nicodemus is in the room. Jesus is saying this to him. He's already kind of pounded some of the uh, Jewish ideology that was in his mind before. Here he's doing it again. Because in the belief, the popular belief of the Jews was that the Messiah would come. And the Messiah would come and he would condemn the Gentiles. He would condemn the heathen nations, but not the Jews. Those are God's special people. That's what he's coming to do. So when the Messiah comes, condemnation to everybody else. That's why Amos talks about you guys who look forward to the day of the Lord. Be careful about hoping for the day of the Lord because I'm coming for you too. That's what he's talking about in Amos because they're like, yeah, the day of the Lord, come on. Because they, they're, they're not thinking he's coming to judge them. He's coming to judge all those other people because they're the wicked ones. We're God's special uh, people. Jesus is knocking that down. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world. By the way, why did God not send his son into the world to condemn the world? The world is already condemned. It doesn't need further condemnation. It doesn't need condemnation. It's condemned. The wrath of God is being poured out upon all unrighteousness of men because in their unrighteousness they suppress the truth. Romans 1.18 tells us that. That's condemnation. It's coming. The wrath of God is coming. Jesus doesn't need to come and, and condemn further. No, he's coming to save. He's coming to save. And not just um, the, the, the Jews, but 
Gentiles and Jews, to save the whole world. He's coming for all of it. He's coming for all of it. He didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And that was always God's plan, right? Always God's plan. Just like the Jews got the temple wrong. Remember I told you the temple was sort of had become their uh, a nationalistic symbol of Judaism. Look at this, this is us, and this is so amazing. Yet they put all the, the merchant stuff in the court of the Gentiles, which torpedoed their opportunity to worship, right? The pilgrim was supposed to come and see the God of Israel. They couldn't see that. They weren't looking for that. They, they, they didn't see the vision God had for the temple. And we read some scriptures that showed that. God intended for all people to come and see him through that. God also intended all people to see God through Israel. In Isaiah chapter 42, I have it for you, verses 6 to 7. He says this, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness, and I will hold your hand, and I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people as a light to the Gentiles. He's speaking to Israelites. I've called you in righteousness. I'm going to hold your hand. I'm going to give you to the people, to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison and those who sit in darkness from the prison house. That was God's vision there. That the whole world could receive salvation, not just the Jews. Not just the Jews. And that's why Jesus so often says things like this in John chapter 12, verse 47. If anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him. That's interesting. If anyone hears me and doesn't believe, I don't judge them. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. In Luke chapter 19, verse 10, he says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. That which was lost. And how are we saved? Through belief. Over and over again, John is using that word. It's about belief. You have to believe. You have to believe. And so here's the results of unbelief. Those who choose to remain in unbelief, chapters 18 to 21, show us the results of that. And it's sad. Verse 18, he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. While God's offer of salvation is broad and it's open to all, at the same time, it's narrow. It's narrow because it excludes anyone who rejects Christ. It's open to all. Anyone can believe. But if you reject Christ, that, that's, it's become narrow. Because there's no other name by which we must be saved. He who does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Can you notice this? That it's not just about belief. It's not just about belief in something. Isn't that sort of the clarion call today? Believe. Just believe in, in something because there's power in belief. Can I tell you something? I can have all the belief in the world in a potted plant. It's not going to do a thing for me. I can believe that I'll jump off a cliff and fly because there's power in belief. Rubbish. But that's the world. Belief. There's power in belief. Just believe. No, there's not power in belief. There's power in the one in whom we believe. It is the object of our belief that matters. That's what matters. Not belief. Belief is nonsense. So don't go away. Yeah, Kevin just said it's all about belief. Yes, it is all about belief in one person, in the only name of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. You believe in him, and there's power. It's not your power, but it's his, because he has power to save. We sing about it. Mighty to save. 
He is the only one that can save. The only one that has power to save. And the result of unbelief is condemnation. That comes to us in verse 19. And this is the condemnation. Ultimately answering this question, why is God bringing judgment, really? This is the condemnation. That the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Men love darkness not for darkness' sake. Did you notice it here? Men love darkness because darkness hides things, doesn't it? You can keep things pretty well hidden in the dark. It hides their deeds, which are, it says, evil. And I want to point out the Greek word here is uh, paneros, paneros, P-O-N-E-R-O-S. And that simply just means wicked. So their deeds are wicked. So their love of darkness is rooted in its uh, ability to conceal the, the wicked deeds that they are doing. That's, that's why they love the darkness, because it's, it's concealing power. But by contrast, look at verse 20. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. So they love the darkness, or hate, uh, love the darkness, but they hate the light. And the word in that phrase there, the word for evil, practicing evil, is a different word. And it is phaulos, uh, P-H-A-U-L-O-S. Why does John use a different word? Because the word means worthless, meaningless. They love darkness because it conceals their wickedness. But they hate the light, not because it reveals their deeds as wicked. Listen, the world doesn't see their deeds as wicked, does it? They don't see their deeds as wicked. That's actually not the problem. You can tell them all day till you're blue in the face their deeds are wicked. It's not going to change a thing. That's why people are standing and saying, hey, listen, I'm going to believe I'm a man. I'm going to believe I'm a woman. I can, there's power in belief. I can believe whatever I want, and I'm not going to look at that as wicked. What the light reveals is not that the deeds are wicked. The light reveals that the deeds are worthless, meaningless. No one, people can care less that the deeds are wicked. They're happy to hear that. No one wants to hear that their life has no meaning. No one wants to hear that life is purposeless and meaningless. Everything your life is about has no meaning and no purpose. And the life, the light reveals that. And so they hate the light. They hate the light. And Christ is the light. We haven't talked about that since chapter 1, but I want you to look at it real quick. Look at chapter 1. John has already introduced this light. In verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. That's John the Baptist. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not the light. John the Baptist was not the light. But was sent to bear witness of that light. And here it is. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. Jesus is the light. Christ is the light. He's the true light, and that light comes to every man and exposes our hearts. I know it says exposes their deeds, but what are deeds? What are the things that you do? Aren't they an expression of your heart? They express your heart. The light doesn't just expose the deeds for the deed's sake. The light exposes the heart. And so unbelief is not rooted in... Uh, a lack of sufficient proof in the truth. I just need more evidence. That's not where unbelief is rooted. 
Unbelief is not rooted in just all the negative circumstances of, of my life. Unbelief is not rooted in uh, my hurtful past. Hear me on this. Unbelief is rooted in love of self. That's where unbelief is rooted. Ultimately, ultimately, we love what we love. We do what we want to do. And that, that is the ultimate problem. Self is ruling the heart. James tells us that sin originates when we are drawn away by our own desires and enticed. He puts the culpability on you and on me. He says, ultimately, all sin is rooted in what you want. It's not the deeds themselves. The deeds reflect your heart. I choose that over him. It reflects the heart. And a heart that is ruled by self, a heart that's ruled by self is evidence of unbelief. Evidence of unbelief. By contrast, though, verse 21, but he who does the truth comes to the light. That his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. Believers hate their sin and love righteousness. That's the difference. They have nothing to hide, so they don't fear the light. There's nothing to hide. They're not without sin, right? We're not without sin. But when the light does reveal sin, what's our response? What should it be? Repentance and faith. That's, that's it. That's the difference. What was Nicodemus's response? You know what? No, no saving response is indicated in this passage. We don't know from this passage how Nicodemus responded. But I do want to really quickly take you to John chapter 7, um, because it does give us a little, maybe a little hint of maybe what kind of impact this conversation with him had. Chapter 7, look at verse, look at verse 50. You got the, the Pharisees and they're all, they're all um, debating about what to do with Jesus and all that. And, and, and Nicodemus rises up, verse 50, Nicodemus, he who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? See, he wanted to do things right. He said, listen, you've got questions for Jesus. Bring Jesus in. Let's talk to him. But don't try to do this illegal stuff. Guess where we see him again? At the tomb with Joseph of Arimathea. He's there to bury the body of our Savior, to anoint him with aloes and myrrh. That shows me there was something that happened to Nicodemus. I don't know where along the road... But I think something changed in him. And that's what belief brings. Belief brings regeneration. Belief brings a change. Belief brings the work of God in the life of a person. And by regeneration, we do. We live differently than our former lives of darkness. We, we have meaning. We have purpose. We have hope. But unbelief brings condemnation. This life, that's lived in darkness without meaning, without purpose, and, and ultimately without hope. You probably noticed that throughout the different weeks I've been reading quotes from J.C. Ryle. He's written a book called Daily Readings, and they're all his daily thoughts on reading through the book of John. And so I've read different excerpts in here. I'm going to read you the whole one that he wrote on this because it just ties it all up together so well. This is what he says. These verses show us the true cause of the loss of man's soul. Hmm. Our Lord said to Nicodemus, this is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. 
The words before us form a suitable conclusion to the glorious tidings which we have been considering. They completely clear God of injustice in the condemnation of sinners. They show in simple and unmistakable terms that although man's salvation is entirely of God, his ruin, if he is lost, will be entirely from himself. He will reap the fruit of his own sowing. God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. There's no unwillingness on God's part to receive any sinner, however great his sins. God has sent light into the world. And if a man will not come to the light, the fault is entirely on man's side. His blood will be on his own head if he makes shipwreck of his soul. The blame will be at his own door if he misses heaven. His eternal misery will be the result of his own choice. His destruction will be the work of his own hand. God loved him and was willing to save him, but he loved darkness, and therefore darkness must be his everlasting portion. He would not come to Christ, and therefore he could not have life. The truths we have been considering are peculiarly weighty and solemn. Do we live as if we believe them? Salvation by Christ's death is close to us today. Have we embraced it by faith and made it our own? Let us never rest till we know Christ as our own Savior. Let us look to him without delay for pardon and peace if we've never looked before. And let us go on believing on him if we've already believed. Whosoever is his own gracious word, whosoever believeth in him, shall not perish but have eternal life. The question you might be having, I just want to end with just reading you a passage from Romans 10, is how? I've heard all that, and I still want to know how these two things work together. Hope you don't ask that question. I hope you don't go back to like, I, this still doesn't make sense. This still doesn't make sense. Can I believe today? Can you believe? Yes, you can. And if you believe today, guess what God just promised? Regeneration. New life. Rebirth. How does God do that in conjunction with your I don't know. That's God's business. He does it though. This is Paul, this is all Paul determines to know about it in Romans 10. This is all he cares about knowing, and this is all we should care about knowing too. In verse 14, how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How do you call on, on, on someone you can't you haven't believed in? How do you do that? And how shall they believe on him of whom they've not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how should they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. By the word of God. The good news today is you can believe today because you've heard. That's what, that's what he says. You can believe today. Because you heard. And belief, although a work of God and brings regeneration and life, can happen. Can happen because he says the word of God brings it. It's incredible. How all that works together, I don't know. I don't know. But the great news for you all today is that God loved the world. He sovereignly determined to love us. What a good God. And today he offers salvation. Belief in Christ is required. If you haven't believed... Believe in him today. Let me pray. God in heaven, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the gospel, which is so eloquently presented to us today by Jesus, his own words to Nicodemus, a man so far from it, 
a man so reliant upon his own righteousness, his own work, so confident in his own ability to save himself, needed to know that he had no ability whatsoever. That instead, what he needed was belief in the one who could save. God, thank you for such a simple gospel message. We don't need to do uh, 40 Hail Marys. We don't need to uh, pilgrimage around the world. We, we simply need to believe in Jesus, the one who has the power to save, the only one who's been to heaven who can tell us the truth of heavenly realities. God, you've made it so clear to us today that salvation truly comes through Christ and Christ alone. God, we are so thankful for your love for us, not based on anything in us, but just because that's what kind of God you are. And I pray that we would today, if we haven't yet, respond to your free offer, your willing offer to receive us all by belief. May we believe in you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.